Welcome to Parenting Refreshed, an original podcast from UNICEF that explores the impact of the COVID pandemic on parents, caregivers, and children. From mental health, education, and technology, to climate change, immunization, war, and the health issues of tomorrow. Each episode features experts in that field informing us about the latest information that science and experience has to offer. Being a parent or caregiver in today's world can often be overwhelming. That's why UNICEF Parenting brings together some of the world's leading experts to share facts, helpful tips, and practical guidance. Information parents can trust to help give their children the best start in life. Head to unicef.org forward slash parenting. Today, we're discussing parenting and climate change with UNICEF Special Advisor Paloma Escudero. She's talking about why activism is so important no matter how small the act, how young people can bring about change and climate anxiety, what is it and what can we do to help alleviate it? So let's meet her. I am Paloma Escudero, UNICEF Special Advisor for Climate and Children, advocating for the children's rights to have climate justice around the world. She's talking to one of the most important and respected young voices in the climate movement, Vanessa Nakate. Hi, I am Vanessa Nakate. I am a climate justice activist from Uganda, the author of A Bigger Picture and also a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador. There is a climate crisis that is affecting the lives of so many people right now, and we need to create as much awareness as possible on every platform that we get. So let's start by looking at why Vanessa devoted her early life to climate justice. Vanessa, why, how did you start your activism? What drove you? in your early years to think that you wanted to devote your life to fight for climate justice? Yes, in 2018, I started to do research about some of the challenges that the people in my country, Uganda, were facing. In that moment, I got to find out that climate change was one of those problems. And I got to learn about the, you know, the changes in weather patterns, the extreme weather events that were already happening in some parts of Uganda, like the landslides and the flooding in the eastern part of the country and also the flooding in the western part of the country. So in that moment, I decided that I would do something you know, about this issue and create awareness. Seeing the climate strikes that were started by Greta 
as well, um, I believe end of 2018, I felt like I could also start striking to create awareness about the challenges that the people in my country were facing in regards to this crisis. What was the support, the reaction of your parents, of your siblings, your close friends? How did they react to this desire to go out there, to go public? Well, I can say it was a, you know, a mixture of reactions from different people. But for the very first climate strike, I had some of my siblings and cousins join me actually before they went back to school. And they, you know, they wanted to know what a climate strike was. And I explained to them, we are trying to create awareness about environmental protection and about the, you know, the crisis that is climate change that is affecting the lives of the people in Uganda and across the world. And also I remember my parents, um, you know, finding out about the climate strike. They didn't really understand what uh, climate strike was. Many of us never understood it uh, until uh, we saw Greta start the strikes, uh, but they never actually said, no, don't do it. I know that your father, has been a very important person in your life. Can you tell me how your, your father inspired you, supported you, was a role model in your commitment to tackle climate crisis? I should say my father, I think, has really been an inspiration in most of the areas of um, his life. But to speak from the climate perspective, and I mean, it's these things that happen and then you realize years later that, oh, actually, um, this must have drawn me to this place um, without realizing. I remember when he was uh, president of one of the Rotary Clubs um, in Bugolobi. That's like a region within Kampala uh, district, which is in Uganda. He led a mission, it was called Mission Green, to plant trees across different communities in Uganda to try and combat uh, climate change and to restore as well the ecosystems and the environment in general. And that is something that I pr probably 2016 when he did that, I remember actually getting um, a t-shirt from him as well that had Mission Green. I wore it a lot, I think, in the times when I had just started activism because it was like the the only environmental related t-shirt I had. So I wore, I wore it a lot. That is a seed that had been sown a few years back. Absolutely. I think that this is a beautiful example of how parents can be inspiring, but also can be showing a way. For my friends, some of them were really shocked that I was doing these strikes. For some of the people I'd gone to school with, uh, they thought it was uh, quite embarrassing <laughs> to go to the street and hold placards because that that isn't something that people would call cool or it would be a bit embarrassing and weird for you to hold a placard and go to the streets. But... I mean, regardless of all uh, the reactions, my parents and my family and some of my friends really just stood with me 
even when some of them didn't understand what exactly the climate strikes were. You have encouraged more and more young people in Uganda, in Africa, at global level. Now you are a reference for so many young climate activists. How do you look back and think about your initial first strike with your siblings and how now you see in Uganda, in your own country, this movement has grown, but also what has been the impact that you consider all your fellow activists are really delivering and aiming for? Well, I remember when I started, actually, I was planning to do this awareness for a couple of months and not necessarily devote my whole life to it. So when I started and the months that I had planned to do that for were finished, I just found myself continuing uh, to do the strike. It was just kind of hard to stop, especially seeing that there was still inaction from our leaders and the climate crisis continued to affect uh, the lives of so many people in different parts of the world. But then looking back at that moment of the very first, um, you know, climate strike probably four years uh, ago, and right now I'm just thankful that I started. I'm thankful for the friends that I've made in this journey, for the fellow activists that I've organized and mobilized with in Uganda, with the Rise Up movement that has really been working to create these spaces to amplify the voices of those on the front lines of the climate crisis, because we've believed that every activist has a story to tell. And these stories need platforms. These stories need opportunities, you know, through media, through events, through conferences. So we've tried to do that through Rise Up. And looking back again in 2019, where I started a project of installing solar panels and clean cooking stoves in schools in Uganda, was started as one school. We've now installed in, you know, 33 schools, impacting the lives of about 11,000 children in these schools and hoping to reach more schools as well. So really the impact that we've seen, you know, with the work that has been done by activists and also the impact of the projects on the ground uh, makes me really thankful to the movement and everyone that we've worked with. And I think this is a very important message that climate action is when people really have the muddy boots and are really changing lives one by one, reminding the world that there is a way to fight climate change. But tell me, because I, you started 2018 with full of hope and energy, and then COVID came, the pandemic came into our lives. How that affected your commitment, your dreams, but also how do you think this affected the climate movement in general? Well, uh, when the pandemic came, it literally changed the lives of everyone across the world, um, And in that moment, first of all, we saw that leaders are actually capable of listening to the science and taking measures to ensure that, you know, people are protected. We saw this happen during the pandemic with the lockdowns to like reduce the spread of um, the disease and the infections. And it just made us realize that leaders can listen to the science and they can do something about it. And the resources are available 
And it's the same thing with the, you know, the climate crisis is the same science. We just need the leaders to listen to that science because we know the resources are available to address this issue. I also remember during the, you know, the pandemic, one of the things that I got to learn through the different articles that were being written around that time was how the continuous encroachment on wildlife habitats and biodiversity could really expose humanity to many of these viruses. That is something that I didn't know before, but something that I, I really learned. And it made me realize how you know, the world is so interconnected that what may seem like a, a small action uh, ends up impacting people in really uh, devastating ways. And of course, during that time, we saw how you know, the climate movement couldn't go to the streets anymore and mobilize on the streets because we listened to the science, we listened to the guidelines that were given in order to ensure that we all overcome this crisis. And many of us, or most of us, started doing our strikes online. Many of us realized that there are so many things that we can do online without having to meet in person. So yes, uh, the change that I really saw was that we couldn't go to the streets anymore. But then we took the streets online, we took the message online, and we continued speaking and organizing. And we would organize like climate strikes and different young people would join as Zoom calls and we just talk and discuss and share what we are doing. So for me, the message, we continue to create the awareness. We continued to hold leaders accountable through these online strikes, through the webinars, through interviews. We just couldn't do it on the streets anymore. At UNICEF, every week during the pandemic, we were doing opinion polls with hundreds of thousands of young people all around the world to see how they were feeling, what they were worried about. And consistently, in Peru, in Uganda, in Afghanistan, there were three top concerns for young people. Of course, they had a very serious concern about their own education because they were locked at home. They were a serious concern as well about their mental health. But always, always in the top three concerns was climate. Everything you have been doing in the previous years in the streets, once you move it to internet, that really made it global. And I think it's thanks to the perseverance and the commitment of the young people that once the pandemic is over, climate had not disappeared from the political agenda. And I, I was with you in, at COP27 in Shamer Sheikh a few weeks ago, and you could see that the world hopefully would care to keep committing to really, really finding a way to mitigate the impact of climate change, but especially to stop the increase on the emissions. Tell me at the moment, if you had a message for your fellow activists, but also for the families and parents who are also joining and supporting the plight of their kids, why do you think at this moment they should not only engage with climate action, with climate justice, but also go beyond that and really make um, a change in their own lives if they believe truly that each one of us can have a role to play 
uh, to mitigate, to change, to tackle this uh, climate crisis? Well, the climate crisis is like the greatest threat that is affecting the lives of so many people right now. You know, like I say, this world is so interconnected in so many ways. And along my journey of activism, I've learned and understood how the climate crisis has exacerbated hunger in so many communities, like what we are seeing in the Horn of Africa. We've seen how climate change exacerbates conflict and affects peace-building efforts in communities as resources get depleted. We've seen how girls are dropping out of school as a result of, you know, still these climate disasters. And the fight for climate justice is a fight for poverty eradication. It's a fight for zero hunger. You know, it's a fight for peace in our communities. It's a fight for uh, clean air, sanitation. Young people, I believe, have understood what is happening right now. They are you know, using whatever platform that they have to communicate the crisis. But now we need, you know, more people. We need our parents to be able to stand with us, to speak with us, you know, to use their platforms as well. Because when you realize that it's not a single issue kind of crisis, you realize that it impacts almost every sector of our lives. It's important that everyone comes on board and it's important that you know everyone understands the role that they can play. Not everyone will feel comfortable to go to the street, but there are many ways that people can be involved. We've seen activists take oil and gas companies to court that is the place where we need lawyers, for example, and judges to stand with us. In schools, that is where we need teachers to stand with us, to speak with students, to carry out climate uh, education with students. But I think that even climate education at home is possible. I believe there are materials and books as well that parents can use to kind of help their children understand more of the topic and understand what they can do, how they can support their children as well in this fight. With media itself, that's why we need journalists to cover the climate crisis, especially in the areas that are most impacted right now. So it's really a place of finding what you can add to the movement and using that not all of us will go to the street but we can still use you know the skills that we have to be able to add to the climate movement and mobilize together for a better world you're listening to parenting refreshed from unicef a series of podcasts looking at different aspects of parenting in a world that's changing around us. We're currently looking at parenting and climate change with UNICEF Special Advisor Paloma Escudero and climate activist Vanessa Nakate. We are going to talk about the fact that nearly every child on the planet is now at risk from at least one climate hazard. Just a reminder, that if you're affected or curious about any of the issues we're discussing, then please head to unicef.org forward slash parenting 
for support, advice, and more podcast episodes like this one. A UNICEF you report poll in Africa in recent months showed a very, very worrisome statistic. A lot of African children and young people are living the impact of the climate crisis with a lot of anxiety. Even two out of five of those young people who were interviewed, who participated in the poll, said that they were reconsidering starting a family because of the doubts about the future of their, their countries, their communities, their economies, because they could see the devastating impact of, of climate change. And knowing that, especially in Africa, but in many other parts of the world, every single child is going to be impacted every year for at least one big climate hazard. It could be floods, it could be cyclones. Really, the anxiety factor in the lives of young people is becoming a reality because they are living it. Yes, uh, so many young people across the world are really worried about the future and they see the impact of the crisis in the present. The present itself is already, you know, catastrophic. You know, you look at the cyclones that have happened in Africa, for example, Cyclone Ida in 2019 that left over 1,300 people dead. That is very scary for so many young people to know. And many more were recorded as missing. It's one thing for us to, you know, have studied about climate change as something that is coming in the future, but it's another to actually live in that future that they say it would come, to see the impacts happening right now. Young people do all this work to create a lot of awareness. And then the decisions from leaders are so disappointing and they're so frustrating. I recently attended the World Economic Forum. And honestly, this is a place that takes so much from you as you know, an activist. It feels like people are so you know, disconnected from what is happening on the ground, you realize that many people will talk about the energy crisis in Europe, how to keep lights on in Europe. Very few or no one will talk about the drought in the own of Africa. So it can be really frustrating to see that these people are actually not understanding what is really happening. And the people that are being impacted are being left out of the conversation. So it, it can be frustrating. It has been frustrating, and I've experienced that as well. You know, it's really a hard thing to advise on what to do for young people. What has really helped me many times to recover from that is just take a moment to rest and be yourself and I think self-care is very, very important in our fight for climate justice because I believe we can better take care of the planet if we are also taking good care of ourselves. Now that's an excellent, excellent advice. I remember I was in, in Pakistan weeks after the biblical floods in, um, in Sindh and Baluchistan, and I met some of the... Uh, young 
climate activists in Pakistan, many of them have had to migrate to leave their towns and villages when they were children during the previous floods in 2010. And when I asked them what was different now, how they were coping themselves, their families, their friends with the new floods, they said that uh, they have learned a lot. They were better prepared because they understood better how to cope with the devastating impacts of the floods. So what they did was they kept calm, they helped their families, they helped their neighbors, they moved them to safe grounds. They had already prepared their homes to be better equipped to deal with climate hazards. But what they said that at this point, it was one at a time. They knew they couldn't be supporting or helping directly the millions of people affected by the Pakistani floods, but they consider that little by little, the movement of young activists in Pakistan had helped to create more awareness and to help the communities to cope better with the tragedy of the floods. But they all insisted in exactly what you are saying, that they really realized that the enormity of the disaster could not lead them to to the negativity or to the pessimism or to the anxiety that nothing could be done, that they knew that they had to care, take care of themselves, of their families, and also, of course, to keep encouraging the, the awareness raising, the commitment, because those floods, those hazards will keep coming. And their vision, their hope is that more and more people will be better equipped to cope with it, to be adapting their lives to what it means to live in a world that climate change has already changed. I know that you traveled with UNICEF to Northern Kenya, and you could talk, especially with lots of mothers. What was the message that they gave you? What, what, how are they living? How are they coping with the worst forms of, of disasters caused by climate change? Yes, so I was able to visit to Kana with UNICEF last year, and it's one of the regions that is being impacted by the drought in the Horn of Africa. And the mothers and the children that I met, I can, you know, share two stories, a story that really shows the face of the climate crisis, and also a story that shows that we can do something about it. I visited one of the hospitals where cases of severe acute malnutrition are referred and treated. And there, one of the children I met with his grandmother, he wasn't able to get help in time and his family couldn't get to the hospital in time. And he was in a situation that the nurses and doctors were calling a wasted kind of situation because you're literally seeing the child wasting in front of your eyes. And that is what was explained by the medical personnel at the hospital. And later that day, the same day that we got to meet that child, we heard that he had passed away. And this really made me realize how the climate crisis is more than weather, it's more than statistics, it's about the people. When we hear that you know, over 30 million people are being impacted by the drought in the Horn of Africa, these are not just statistics, these are real people that are being impacted. And I mean, that could have been a preventable crisis, a preventable death, but here we see 
a child having to lose his life for a crisis that he did not cause. And then I met one of the mothers whose child was also sick, her name being Dorcas and the child's name being Milka. She was able to get help in time through one of the nutrition centers that UNICEF operates and her child was recovering uh, from malnutrition and she was thankful and really happy that her child was still with her because that child could have ended up like the child that we met in the hospital. So it shows that we do have solutions that can help you know children across the world i also remember seeing some solar powered boreholes because this is a region that hasn't received rain in such a long time so that means the access to water uh, is very difficult the water sources have also dried up but then there is a solar powered borehole that was put in place by unicef that is supporting the you know the children in the school to be able to access water but not just the school the community the close uh, health center in that region they are all able to benefit from this water amidst the you know the drought that is affecting so many people and that's why we need more support and funding towards these adaptation uh, measures to help people be able to survive even as we try to mitigate the crisis. Vanessa, you said it all. The climate crisis is a people's crisis. It's a children's crisis. But more and more, when we hear the discussions about potential solutions, proposals to tackle the climate crisis, it's all about big money for infrastructure, big money for energy. In very, very, very few occasions, we are talking about what is needed to protect the children and families who are most affected by this climate crisis as the people and the mothers and the children you met in, in Kenya. What do you think will be the challenge for the coming months? And I say coming months because for climate action, time is of the essence. Well, I... I believe that the science is very clear. The statistics are also very clear. Many people know that very well, but we need to put the human face of the climate crisis and we need people to be able to see that, to see beyond uh, statistics, you know, to see beyond data points, to actually see children, to see mothers, to see communities, to see livelihoods that are being impacted you know, as a result of this crisis. And we know that leaders must massively push for you know, uh, no new fossil fuel investments, and that is for coal, oil, and gas, because we need to tackle the root cause of the climate crisis as well. We need to massively scale up on renewables, especially for communities that are uh, having energy poverty right now. But we also need to talk about adaptation. We need to talk about loss and damage. You know, we saw that at COP27, there was a loss and damage uh, fund that was established, but it ended on just the establishment of a fund, which is currently empty. You know, so we need money in that fund. I think this year, one of the 
very critical things that we really need to work on is to push for real money to be put in the fund to help people that are suffering right now. It's one thing to have a fund that is just an empty bucket, but it's another for real money to come in that fund and for that money to be able to reach the communities that need it the most, communities that are suffering right now. I mean, it all goes back to climate finance on mitigation, adaptation, and also loss and damage. Absolutely. 2023 is the year to make a reality the commitment and the funding for the loss and damage to really protect and reach those communities most affected by climate crisis. I'm the mother of three young boys, very committed to climate, but at sometimes thinking that they are just a a drop in the ocean, that there is little they can do. What will be your message for young people, for the parents of the young people that truly want to engage and join them? What can we do in a year like this to support the climate justice movements that you are leading in such a powerful, compelling, authentic way? What I can say is that, one, no one is too small to make a difference and no action is too small to transform this world because what may seem like one action being done by one person, if different people are doing actions in their communities, using their voices and their platforms, when we put all that together, we realize that it's actually a whole movement with millions of people doing different things but working towards the same thing, climate justice. So it's really in seeing the power in your voice and the power in your action and how that can transform not only your community, but also the entire world. And I think for this year, the messages are still the same for, you know, the different organizers. Well, for me, that no new fossil fuel investment, uh, we need renewable energy to scale up in communities that needed the most, especially those that are having energy poverty right now, and for real money to be put in place for loss and damage, to support communities, to support families, to support children that are being impacted by a crisis that they did not cause. Count on UNICEF's support. Thank you. To be really raising their voices, and not only, as we are saying, to, to raise the alarm, but also to support and provide the solutions. Because as you are saying, no small action is too small. Each action counts, and each action is truly having an impact. And also I would like to end with a very important message. Join the organized movements. Join the organized platforms that all all of us, we have around us, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our cities, in our country, Because every person joining is a show that we care, that to tackle climate crisis matters, and that there are millions and millions of people around the world that are saying to the world that it's about time to act now. Thank you so much, Vanessa. It is an honor to be working along you in the UNICEF family, and hopefully millions and millions of people listening this podcast and beyond will join the cause to tackle climate change and to make sure that the world knows that the climate crisis is a child rights crisis. Thank you so much. Thank you too, Paloma. This podcast was produced by Ashley Clivery. 
Subscribe wherever you're hearing this so that you know when new episodes of Parenting Refreshed become available or head to the website for more information, unicef.org forward slash parenting. Whilst you're there, you'll also find other episodes in the series, including discussions around parenting and mental health. Mental health is about two things. It's about having feelings that make sense in their context, and then being able to manage those feelings effectively. Education. They're interested in making sure that their children are able to discover that their child is resilient, that their child makes friends. And technology. Try not to say no, try to find a way for yes to be good for everyone.